Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Revolutionary Parallels on Zhang Tian and Anti-Imperialism. Today's music comes from three albums by the English avant-garde rock band Art Bears. This is Terrain, an instrumental piece from the album Hopes and Fears. Let's be honest with each other. It's unsurprising that humans learn so little about the world around them. Generally, it seems we ignore as much as possible even in our own backyards. So how can one expect the revolutionary struggles in Qing, China at the turn of the 20th century to have entered into our awareness? But in the wake of the national celebration of the American Revolution of 1776, we might turn our attention to revolutionary parallels. The great globe has been settled, divided, conquered, and ruled by humans for thousands of years. And once modes of travel advanced, the land and sea became a kind of geopolitical construct. People once called pirates became explorers, and conquistadors became discoverers. And we learned last week that as marauders in the form of Western or European imperialists leap and skip across great swaths of terrain, they bring their worldview with them. Not to mention the ships, guns, drugs, and so-called civilization. While it can be startling to find that the grandfather of a U.S. president was an extremely violent narco-trafficker in East Asia, it can be just as startling to find a 1903 pamphlet proposing the overthrow of the Manchu government citing Western thinkers like Rousseau, Washington, and Walt Whitman. That nationalist pamphlet urging the creation of the Chinese Republic was called The Revolutionary Army, and it was written by Zhou Rong, with a preface by Zhang Tian. Both were imprisoned for this act, and Zhou Rong died there at the age of 20. Zhang was released in 1906, and even more prepared to foment the revolution, which would come to a head in 1911. Much of the turmoil in China was the result of foreign invasion, both military and ideological, and both might be called progressive interventions, bolstered by the Enlightenment ideas of so-called Western superiority. Illustrative of this, but impossible to detail here, is the Boxer Rebellion of 1911, an armed insurrection against those progressive invaders that was first supported but then opposed by the Qing government, led by the Manchu minority. This was a defining event for Zhang Tian, who cut off his cue, or his pigtail, in defiance, an act for which he might have lost his head. In the conversation that follows, references are made to Cuba's revolutionary and poet Jose Marti, to W.E.B. Du Bois and his 1903 book The Souls of Black Folk, to the German idealist philosopher Hegel, the central figure of Western imperialist philosophy, to the Yogacara Buddhism of India, and so much more that likely is unknown to most of us in the U.S. Thankfully, there are books to consult on these subjects. One such is by today's guest, Viren Murthy. Murthy is an associate professor of history at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and author of The Political Philosophy of Zhang Tian, The Resistance of Consciousness, published by Brill. We begin by placing Jose Marti and Zhang Tian together in their revolutionary moment. And now, Revolutionary Parallels with Viren Murthy on Interchange on WFHB. We could say that there's some kind of a, a kind of revolutionary moment there where, you know, there's, a, there's definitely the critique of imperialism and, and revolution. So these two definitely bring them together. 
I think one thing that that we might have to consider is, of course, the historical specificity in all of this. I mean, because when we say, well, Jiang is a revolutionary, we're really talking about, well, most people, when they say that, they're talking about the 1911 revolution in China, mm. uh, right? And so that's the Republican revolution, which is obviously connected with anti-imperialism, but it's also, and this is more in the, in the Chinese context, it's much more connected in their imaginary um, with anti-Manchuism, mm-hmm. right? Because the last uh, dynasty in China was a, the Manchu dynasty. Jiang is often thought of as is, is a Han nationalist, right? I mean, okay. um, and someone who is really rethinking Chinese identity according to the, uh, you know, based on the Han ethnicity and then to overthrow the Manchus, mm-hmm. right? But, but of course, that's connected to, to anti-imperialism from two perspectives. So the first is that in the late 19th, especially early 20th century, Jiang is already thinking about the Manchus conquest of China as something similar to imperialism all over the world, right? So the Manchu conquest starts looking like imperialism. Mm. He's also concerned that the Manchus were not resisting Western imperialism enough. Mm. So like, you know, with the Boxer Rebellion, these kind of things, you know, this is one of the reasons why Jiang actually becomes anti-Manchu, because he wasn't anti-Manchu throughout his life, actually. In the late 19th century, he was actually thinking of, with many other reformers about how to reform the Manchu dynasty. Mm. Yeah, so so I would uh, unpack a little bit of that. Uh, and you're right, I mean, there's no way for me either to really sort of see uh, some sort of exact parallels between Marti and uh, uh, Zhang, because, you know, Marti is fighting uh, Spanish colonialists and fighting to actually create a Cuba to give a, a sovereignty or an identity, a nationalist identity, a nation itself, right? To create Cuba as a nation. And so all peoples are Cuban. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, and, and now that you, that you clarified that, I, I began to see the parallels with Jiang um, as, as well. I mean, that because, you know, the late Qing in China is, is often thought of as, as the time when the Chinese nation or Chinese nationalism is born. Um, and so there is that kind of movement in China as well. And we have to then understand, well, there are two dominantly different ways of imagining the Chinese nation in the late Qing. And one is based on culture, right? Um, and so this is where you take culture and the Chinese culture is what makes you Chinese. And the people who were advocating that were often the reformers who were thinking of, yeah, we, we need to make some kind of transition or from like empire to nation, but we should do this, you know, under Manchu rules. And so this was people like Liang Qichao and Kang Youwei are pretty famous for this. And that's why you can see why the, the concept of culture is really important, because if you emphasize culture, then even though you're Manchu, you can become Chinese. Jiang Taiyan was in many ways going against this, right? So he was saying, uh, no, we have to focus on the Han, and we have to overthrow the Manchu regime. His writings from 1900 to about uh, the 1911 revolution, I mean, he's really well known at this time uh, as an anti-Manchu propagandist, with, with you know, people like Sun Yat-sen as well. But uh, during this time, I think both of them are really trying to construct a Chinese identity uh, based on, on the Han against the Manchus. 
Now, of course, that breaks down. I mean, after the revolution, you notice they don't stick to that anymore. Because if you stuck to that, then you'd have to, China would not be as big as it is right now, right? Because all the non-Han would not be part of China. As you start to throw uh, dates around, uh, my brain does this thing where I just start, again, thinking about sort of related things happening in the time, you know, around 1900, uh, and I mentioned Du Bois earlier, Du Bois publishes yeah. The Souls of Black Folk in 1903, I think it is. And again, you've got another person trying to um, inscribe identity, you know, through and against its, you know, the, uh, the way a culture has been devised for you. It's interesting, again, that these are sort of similar time frames. No, no, I think that's right. I think and and I think the narrative of slavery and liberation, mm. I think, becomes important for, for Zhang as well. I mean, there's a sense in which he's saying that, you know, we the, the majority have been sort of enslaved by the Manchus, right? There's so there's a there's a narrative of liberation, autonomy, and I think that things like that. So that that is where maybe we can see a kind of a global discourse at, mm -hmm. at this period. Uh, now, how one actually explains that, I think, is a is is yeah, as you were saying, a, a more complicated right, story. Right. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Revolutionary Parallels on the Chinese scholar and philosopher Zhang Tian with guest Viren Murti. In it, we seek to detail the tangle of the so-called East and West at the turn of the 20th century, where we find imperialism striding the globe with technological strength and a will to power, and the ways anti-imperial nationalism is deployed against it. So Zhang, uh, I think, was born in 1869. What is China like in the period where Zhang is, is sort of becoming a person, I guess, um, becoming an adult and a thinker? You know, is there already a sense that, you know, China is, is sort of confused about its identity at this point because it's, you know, post two opium wars, uh, it's having already to deal with the idea of, of, of possible colonization, things of that nature. Are these, are these the, the sort of ground of his becoming? Yes, I would, I would say so. I mean, it is a period where, you know, uh, there's a lot changing in China. And he's right in the middle of that. Because he is someone who, who starts out actually wanting to just be a scholar, right? And he wants to just read the classical Chinese texts. He eventually finds that, you know, there's too much going on. And he begins to get into into politics and he starts out as a reformer in the in the 1890s right and that's so he's actually you know sort of in the same camp as the people who are trying to protect the manchu or trying to reform within the manchu empire you know jiang is a part of that of course that fails uh, and then, you know, one event after the other, then, you know, the, 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 the boxer uprising and, and the sort of fiasco around that where Jiang again blames the Qing government for that. And that's when he makes the shift. Give me a sense of what China's, you know, uh, I guess global footprint might be. Again, since we're talking in a, a time frame that uh, I know best probably in terms of the Russian Revolution, right? Lenin writing in, in, in the early 1900s also write another parallel I suppose yeah, we can yeah. make. So yeah. I'm a blank slate here. I literally know almost yeah, yeah. nothing about China to say, is China a sleeping, quote unquote, backwards nation the way, you know, Russia had been? Um, and I know there's so much going on at this time between Japan, Russia, and China as well, that again, I know nothing really about, or I would have no way to even, you know, help sketch it in. <laughs> it'd be, I'm sure it'd be too complicated to try to sketch in, but this is all happening, yes. right? So it's just a very, it's a very difficult global picture 
it's a complicated period because if you think about it, the 1900s are, are crucial, but we should think about, well, why did all of a sudden the Chinese, a lot of these intellectuals begin to, to really think of reform? And one of, and one of the events, of, of course, the, the Opium War is there. But, I, but even after that, I mean, 1895, the Sino-Japanese War mm. uh, is really crucial here. Because, and many people say that it's after that that you really get the uh, the birth of the Chinese nation and and so on, hmm. or the birth of the Chinese Chinese nationalism at least. And that war is extremely significant because you know this was um, a country in Asia that uh, previously the Chinese didn't think was 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 that great. You take the long sweep of Chinese history. I mean, Japan at certain times was a kind of tribute. Uh, tributary states at certain other times it, it wasn't and, and usually one thinks about the china japan relationship uh, you know if we look at uh, the pre-modern period much more as the japanese borrowing from the chinese and and china being really the standard of civilization and culture after 1895 that that begins to change because the revolutionaries the, the reformers really look to japan as a successful modernizer, because they say, well, look, you know, they've they won this war. And then, of, uh, of course, if we go to, you go to 1904, then you get the, the Russo-Japanese War, and, the, and Japan wins that too. And so even after, after that, Japan becomes really a, a model for not just China, but many all, all around the world. They've got it right, right? They've, they've been able to keep their own culture and yet modernize, right? So that becomes a, a narrative for a lot of the reformers. And Zhang starts out sort of in that camp, and, and he goes to Japan a couple of times. But by the second time he goes there, he's already become a little critical of Japan because, you know, he actually sees its ties are pretty close to, to England, and that becomes an, an issue for him. So, so I think that, yeah, there's a lot going on. The Russian Revolution, of course, is also there. I'm thinking of, of 1905, mm -hmm. you know, and, and many people would say, yeah, that's like there's a, you know, there's a revolutionary century happening right. at, at that point. Out of town, my work takes me out of town. I empty villages, I burn their houses down. I set up factories, lay out plantations and bring prosperity. It's time for a break. Here's another from Art Bears. This is The Song of Investment Capital Overseas, from The World As It Is Today. More with Viren Murti on the political philosophy of revolutionary Chinese thinker Zhang Tian when Interchange returns. Stay with us. My work takes me out of town. I empty villages. I burn the houses down. I set up factories. Lay out plantations. Prosperity to the poor nation. Prosperity to the poor nation.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Revolutionary Parallels on Zhang Tian and Anti-Imperialism. And our guest is author and scholar Viren Murti. In this segment, we'll begin with Japan as a model of modernization in Asia, and then move to Zhang's deepening understanding of German idealism through the lens of India's Yogacara Buddhism. Is, is that how we can understand what modernization is? Japan successfully becoming more like European powers. And when we were talking about modernizing, what, is that, what does that entail here? What are reformers trying to do? Uh, what are revolutionaries trying to do in 1905 or 1904? That modernization is the question. How, how does China modernize? And what does that mean? Keep up with Europe, keep up with the economics, you know, keep up with trade, keep up with this global regime that's sort of opening up the world, uh, the capitalist regime? Yeah, I think that's a that's a difficult question. And, and the reason is because at this point, if we actually look at the texts of um, Zhang, uh, Kang Youwei, and so on, I don't think we'll see that any term that translates modernization, mm. right? Yet, that's going to come later, I think. Okay. But on the other hand, all of what they're talking about in some way deals with modernization. And so one has to sort of put the pieces together. And the thing is, we can put the pieces together in different ways. I think you're right. Whether you're talking about the reformers or the revolutionaries, they're in some ways thinking, talking about modernization without actually using the term. But then we'd have to sort of say, well, what does that mean? And this is because the whole idea of modernity is, is, is somewhat contradictory, right, from the, from the beginning. Because on the one hand, it means something like autonomy and liberation, right, and things like that, right? Because it's this idea that a, a fundamental characteristic of modernity is this idea of, you know, being able to give laws to yourself, right? Autonomy and so on and sovereignty, all of these concepts are, are, are modern. But there's a lot of other things that, that come with this, such as capitalism, larger bureaucracies, all of these kind of things that in many ways seem to undercut the others, this other part of modernity, right? And so there's a tension very much within modernity. And I think that if you look at someone like Zhang Taiyan, he's sort of saying, I'd like this part of modernity, but maybe not this, right? And so let's, let's try to see if we can get have our modernity without the domination that goes along with it. I mean, and it's a little tricky because it actually reminds me of, you know, when my one of my father's friends came came to the United States first. I mean, he was he was a vegetarian and he, somehow he'd always end up going to uh, to Burger King because <laughs> his friends were going there or something. And he wouldn't it'd be very difficult for him to order anything. And so he'd end up saying, I'll have a cheeseburger, hold the beef. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and this is exactly what they were trying to do. Well, I'll have the modernity, but I don't want all this stuff. And and in some ways, you can think about socialism as part of this, that saying, okay, yeah, we'll have modernity, but I don't want capitalism, right? And so this is where you get a, a kind of anti-capitalist narrative um, that's different from the usual Marxian narrative, because these are places that haven't really gone through capitalism. So very even before that happens, they're saying, oh, well, we can draw on this other stuff and we can we can become modern. So we'll take equality, we'll take this kind of, but we don't want the structural kind of 
right. conditions for that. When you were talking about Manchu and uh, again and Han or trying to reform a dynasty from within, the idea is to, to change the dynasty to look something more like parliamentary monarchy or something like that, trying to create a, a different kind of state entity. Yes. The actual term I think they use is the is a constitutional monarchy. Right. 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 And, and and they were looking to a, they were looking to another number of places as a model. I mean, I think they were looking at one point to, to England, but also I mean Japan as well, because Japan had the Meiji Emperor was still there, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and Japan is a good example for this because if you look at the transition from the Tokugawa to the Meiji, they actually they brought the emperor back to the center. Right. And so this is why there's, you know, places where I call this a kind of back to the future narrative, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's like they're saying, we're going to go back to the emperor. We're going to bring the older, the emperor back. We're going to go back to a time when the emperor was really the center. But, you know, precisely when they do that, they become modern, right? And and so so what they do is through the emperor, create a centralized state. Right. And that's what um, people like Kanye Wei were saying, yeah, Japan, it really worked. And, um, and, you know, John Tayan is saying, no, I don't think that's going to, that's, that's not going to work. And we need a completely new system. Uh, we kind of already talked about it, but I'd like to kind of settle back into the space where a Zhang is becoming Zhang, right? So I, I think, uh, you, you mentioned him being a certain kind of revolutionary and you've written about him taking part in, in the revolutionary, mm-hmm. uh, army pamphlet. Uh, yeah. uh, so that's yeah. in 1903 and this pamphlet, right, right. Uh, the, the pamphlet was fascinating again. And I think for me, uh, what I'm trying to sort of get through in my own head here, right, is how even as we're talking about ways in which we try to maybe not westernize, quote unquote, westernize, try to not uh, bring in a lot of these these ideas that come along with modernization. Um, there's the issue of this kind of uh, infiltration of Western ideas, right? So, so uh, and I don't know if this happens at an elite level, or at an intellectual level, but clearly when you write about uh, people becoming Washingtons uh, and, and referencing Rousseau and Walt Whitman in your pamphlet, <laughs> this is yes. a fascinating thing to me, right? I mean, it was like, yes. that just, I mean, it kind of blew me away to think about it, right? You know, it's another world to me that I just had never even imagined being influenced at all by, you know, leaves of grass. Yeah. So it's, it's, it is that, I mean, I think that you have here at the time, uh, especially in that period, right, the 1903, and John Tayen is also, he writes the preface for that text. And that's a really famous text of, of anti-Manchu propaganda. I mean, in fact, it's partly the reason why he ends up in jail. And I think that becomes a kind of turning point for, for John. I think after that period, he becomes much more, you know, I don't know if anti-Western is the right term, but definitely anti-imperialist right. uh, in, a, in, a larger, in a larger sense, right. right? really thinking about it. I mean, this is also partly because when he gets out of jail, he goes in 1906, he goes to Tokyo where he, where he interacts with some of the socialists over there. Hmm. That, I think, broadens his perspective. He also you know, is reading a lot of Buddhism in jail and then in Tokyo also being exposed to much more Western philosophy. So hmm. I think it if you look before 1906, you don't see as much references to Western philosophy in his work. It's really after that. And so we really need to think dialectically about the West anti-West, because mm-hmm. I think it's it's precisely when he becomes more exposed to Western thought that he becomes more anti-West in sure, some sense. Sure, right, 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 yeah. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Revolutionary Parallels on the Chinese scholar and philosopher Zhang Tian with guest Viren Murti. In it, we seek 
to detail the tangle of the so-called East and West at the turn of the 20th century, where we find imperialism striding the globe with technological strength and a will to power, and the ways anti-imperial nationalism is deployed against it. Again, the striking parallels to, I guess, revolutionaries in some sense, but the ways in which, you know, the state jails you, and while you're in jail, you you read and learn to be more revolutionary, right? Exactly. You come out of jail much better prepared to fight against the thing that sent you into jail. It's pretty fascinating, you know, in parallels with Malcolm X there, for sure, in terms of, you know, having jail turn you into something else. Um, yeah. yeah, I think I think that's a great, uh, in, uh, an interesting parallel that I didn't think about. I mean, because, and, and in the Malcolm X case, I mean, he, he memorizes the whole dictionary in right, jail, which right. is a, which is quite a feat. And of course, with with Zhang, it's it's more maybe more of a a switch in perspective. I mean, uh, he's also a victim of circumstance. I mean, he was supposed there are not that many books he could read. I mean, there were like missionary books that you could read, at mm. the, and then he had a friend come in and give him these Buddhist texts, and he was reading those. So the Buddhism becomes uh, central to how he how he thinks about then attacking the uh, the sort of Westernizing ideas that are happening at the time. Zhang becomes a person that is studied also, and I think a lot of what you've written about seems to be about how people have thought about Zhang's thought as well. First of all, and this was sort of interesting, Zhang was sort of forgotten for a while. I mean, I went when I was doing work on my uh, which was my dissertation. So back in early uh, 2003 or sort of 2002, 2003, I was in a bookstore in China and said, you know. I want something about, I, I want to find stuff on Zhang Taiyan. And the bookstore person didn't know who he was. He said, well, what kind of songs has he sung recently? <laughs> you know, and I, and I was like, uh, I was okay. Um, but on the other hand, it was sometimes mandatory to write about Zhang Taiyan. But what you'd have to write about was how he was a, he was a great nationalist. Oh, okay. So it's largely um, that as a nationalist that he's remembered, so and also as a, a scholar of national learning. And then, of course, those texts are very difficult. Because on the one hand, he's going back to a lot of characters, you know, that, that are not used anymore in Chinese. And then he's using those sometimes to talk about very modern things, you know, like something like a theory of evolution or something like that. But one of the things that were overlooked is these writings from, you know, 1906 to 1911, where he uses a lot of these Buddhist writings to develop more philosophical ideas. And that's largely what I focused on. So that would be sort of where I come in, in relation to a lot of the other uh, readings of Zhang. Now, of course, in Japan, there was a tradition where a lot of scholars were looking at Zhang in that, in that way, which is, which is part of the reason why I started gravitating to Japan. Let's talk about the idea of uh, Pan-Asianism sort of being a negative in the first place, that then sort of morphs into a positive, I suppose. D do you mind? So, Pan-Asianism, one of the reasons why it's taken, seen as a negative is because it's connected with Japanese imperialism. Even today, if you go to China, there's there is a little bit of suspicion about something like pan-Asianism um, because, the, you know, it's obviously it was the ideology that the Japanese used to invade um, China and, and Korea. You could say that pan-Asianism had this period, its early period where, you know, it was kind of amorphous. It could go in different directions. It became a state ideology uh, in Japan. And then after, in the post-war, it again has other various possibilities. In fact, in the post-war, Pan-Asianism merges with third-worldism, especially in Takeuchi Yoshimi. 
uh, Pan-Asianism as third worldism in, in, um, in the idea that the third world is another way that would be better than the first and second worlds? Yes, yes. So at least, at least, yeah, that's one, one way of thinking about it because, of course, Bandung is a, becomes a big yeah. part of that, right? And right. so this is even before, you know, third worldism becomes a, a major term. I think it's in the 60s, mm-hmm. um, you know, Takeuchi has this one dialogue with another well-known intellectual. His name is, I think, Omesao Tadao, who, who was very famous for saying that Asia doesn't exist in, in, the, in the late 50s and 60s in Japan. And he was saying, you know, I could go to uh, France and I feel much more at home than if I, you know, I'm a Japanese. I go to India and I feel there's nothing, there's nothing connecting on me in, in India. And Takeuchi Yoshimi, to respond to that, he comes up with an, uh, a definition of Asia that takes it away from geography, right? So right. That's, this is the way he makes the famous statement that, you know, it's confused a lot of people. And that is that, you know, I could say what really defines Asia is resistance to imperialism. And then, you know, um, I think that's when Umasau says, well, could you then give me an example of a country that's not in Asia that is actually Asian? And he says, Cuba. This is why it begins to start looking like the third world, because you can begin to start saying all these people on the periphery, all these, those resistant movements become the, the sign for Asia. That is why it begins to start looking like the third world. It's time for another break. This is The Hermit from Winter Songs, the 1979 release from Art Bears. More on Zhang Tian and the turn to nationalism in China when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. 
For this segment of Revolutionary Parallels with our guest Viren Murti, we'll take a look at nationalism and the way it's deployed as a defense against imperialism and colonialism, and the way India was central to Zhang Tian's thinking about these issues. Time passes by, a snowflake in a summer sky. We talked about Marti, we talked about, you know, what it means to be nationalist. I don't think we'd really talked about formations of nation states or, you know, the idea of nationalism that might not be a negative one. Um, yeah, no, and I think that's an important point. You know, in today's discourse. It's often, if you're nationalist, you're bad. Right. I think that uh, the left has also bought into this. And right. so, so you look back and they say, well, cosmopolitan, that's good. I think they totally forget the, the, the Pan-Asianist tradition was not part of, there wasn't that, not, neither was the third worldist, uh, and neither was Jiang, even though Jiang has this critique of the nation, right? He says that the, the nation is ultimately illusory. But in that same essay, he says, if you're an anti-imperialist nation, nation is extremely important. You can't get rid of the nation state there. But, you know, if you're an imperialist nation, well, then that's another story. So, the possibility of the nation state being something more than just something negative, right? right. Um, and, and that it could be um, a step on the way to something different, right? Because the whole point of third worldism is that nationalism was connected to socialism. Anti-imperialist nationalism was connected to socialism. And so I think that that, I think, is also something that Jiang is uh, kind of a harbinger for. I mean, he begins that. And then Takeuchi Yoshimi really develops that later. The question is not of negating the nation and then being cosmopolitan. Uh, I mean, the whole, and, and this is interesting because there is you know, Kotok Shusui, uh, an anarchist who um, Jiang was um, discussing with, or, or, or they were both part of that socialist study group that, where he presented this whole, uh, the, the essay on the state. Um, he was very much saying, you know, we, we've got to, and he's, what, he's actually one of the people who wrote the first text on imperialism. So I think it's, it's before both Lenin and Hobson. And he was very much completely anti-nationalist. Jiang is going against that, although he doesn't mention uh, Kotok Shusui uh, directly. Uh, later on in the 60s, um, 50s or 60s, there's a Japanese Marxist named uh, Ishimoda Sho, who writes a really nice essay on this, where he really says, you know, you've got to distinguish between uh, the nationalists that are anti-imperialists and, and, or, or even a nationalist informed by Marxism and so on, and uh, Kotok Shusui, and he's not able to make that distinction perhaps because he's in Japan and he's not, by, by the time he's writing, Japan is not really facing imperialism in the same way as the, as the Chinese. It's really fascinating to make the imperialist versus anti-imperialist idea like a nation that is imperialist versus a nation that's, you know, I guess, minding its own business, right? Yeah, you know, no, and I think, yeah, and I think it, the, the distinction probably has to go deeper than right. that because right, sure. the, the thing is, you know, there's the whole problem is something that Moish Postone mentioned, uh, the, the Marxist thinker, that, you know, anti-imperialism doesn't, isn't really a politics, hmm. right? So that if you just say, I'm anti-imperialist, it doesn't tell you anything about what you're actually doing. So, so it's the same with the nation. If you just say you're an anti-imperialist nation, it doesn't tell you how bad your nation is in, internally, right? right, right. Um, so I think that the distinction has to be fleshed out in more concrete terms, in terms of like what the nation is doing and, and where, it, where it's going, right? And, right? and this is why I think Zhang and others, they, they, 
in different ways, they try to spell out, well, what should a nation actually do? Right. right? What should a right. state actually do? Right. That was Marti's, I think, goal generally as well, is to try to understand how you make institutions to serve the right kind of nation. Exactly. Um, yeah. Exactly. Uh, the idea uh, that Asia is anti-imperialist um, doesn't obviously mean it's a perfect place to be. It means it's trying to not be taken over as a colony by the uh, imperial nations, which at the time uh, obviously uh, would be the U.S. Uh, yes. To be anti-imperialist is just not to be dominated by uh, the U.S. So everyone would be Asia except the U.S. <laughs> in that definition, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, the Euro-American bloc, right? And I, and I think this is this has plagued the concept of Asia from the very beginning, right. I think. You know, Japan has been a major center for this, I mean, because for this debate, because already from the very beginning, one of the first Pan-Asianists um, would be Okakura Tenshin, right? Who goes to, goes to India and so on. He's, he's sort of a writer and art historian, and he has this whole idea of Asia is one. But then on the other side, and that's Fukuzawa Yukichi, right? Who has a famous... I think it's 1885, he writes a very famous essay called Leaving Asia, right? That is where he's trying to say, well, Japan has got to leave Asia, right? And so that's where it's got to, it's got to become, where once it modernizes, it becomes more like Europe. Right. And so this is where, you know, Asia becomes something that you can go in and out of Asia, right? And this is also there in um, Sun Yat-sen's uh, famous essay in the 19, 1924, I think where he's speaking to a bunch of Kobe merchants in Japan, and he's saying, well, Japan has to really decide what it wants to do. Does it want to take the path of Asia, or does it want to take the path of the Western imperialist? And, you know, there he gives another example, which is very, very interesting, uh, and that is the, the uh, example of Russia. He says that Russia, you know, after the 1917 revolution, it's jumped into Asia. Uh, it could have been Europe, but now it's jumped into Asia. And so we have to really think of it as, you know, sort of a kind of model in that sense, right? So, so this is where Asia can then be connected to, to socialism, you know, so there's really a politics behind this geographical category. And I think that's that I think is what I want to stress. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Revolutionary Parallels on the Chinese scholar and philosopher Zhang Tian with guest Biren Murti. In it, we seek to detail the tangle of the so-called East and West at the turn of the 20th century, where we find imperialism striding the globe with technological strength and a will to power, and the ways anti-imperial nationalism is deployed against it. Let's jump back to Zhang then, because you tie Asia as method to India as method, and then to Zhang as trying to make use of Buddhism in in India or from India to understand China, you know, as a way to be anti-imperialist. So I think India is a key figure in this imaginary, because if you think about India, well, it was colonized. So a lot of reformers, you know, might have pointed to India to say, hey, we've got to look at what we do, uh, you know, we better modernize, otherwise we're going to end up like India. And this is something that, uh, you know, Fukuzawa Yukichi says too in his, uh, his famous book called An Outline of a Theory of Civilization, which was published in 1875. And he says, if you don't modernize, you're going to end up like India. And so there's a kind of linear way of thinking about India. But I think with Zhang, that changes a, a little bit. I mean, because, you know, he's actually looking at India as a symbol for the struggle against imperialism. Uh, and that's partly when he's, he's doing his Pan-Asian uh, work. 
Hmm. Well, it is it is a hard thing to get your head around, I suppose. One of the, the things that were, I think, most interesting to me, again, is trying to understand how um, one combats the thinking that begins to invade uh, a country when you start to think about modernizing, think about being like Europe, uh, think about how being successful in that way is a path to follow. A lot of these things are, of course, linked to pro- what we call progress, uh, and, and progress ha- has, as you point out, a kind of linearity to it, right? The idea that you're moving towards this better thing and, and, and the philosopher that we point to in this, you do in particular, but that is known for this kind of thinking is Hegel in particular. So can we work our way into that particular conversation where, where Zhang is trying to, I guess, philosophize against Hegel, against the idea of this kind of linear notion? I think Hegel is a really interesting figure here. Uh, and I think um, his impact in East Asia I think, uh, should not be underestimated. Because we often think of him, especially, and this is in, in um, Asian studies, as uh, almost the sort of proverbial bad guy, right? Because he's the person who, you know, if you look at some of his writings about Asia and so on, it's all, and, or even Africa, especially even Africa, right. you know, that they seem to be always behind and we talk about the march of history and so on. And yet, within his work, you also have the resources for a kind of critique of that perspective. I think that uh, someone like Zhang is coming at him, at, at Hegel, from a, from a somewhat unique perspective, or at least a different perspective, um, because we also have to think about the context, right? So he is reading a lot of Hegel in, in Japanese translation, right? He's reading, or, or maybe he's actually, to put it more, be more precise, he's probably reading summaries of Hegel right. in Japanese, right, in right. Japanese, yeah. right? So, so he's getting a certain kind of Hegel, but there's something that immediately strikes him as interesting. And that is because he's reading a lot of Buddhism too, right? He's reading a lot about Buddhism. Of course, he's reading the original texts, but he's also reading about Buddhism in Japanese texts. Hmm. And those Japanese thinkers are often reading Buddhism using German idealism and Hegel. So, so it all comes together in some ways for him, right? <laughs> okay. um, uh, and, and, and the reason for that, and we have to ask, well, why are these two compatible? Well, if you think about the type of Buddhism that, that Jiang is really reading, it's, it's a Buddhism called Yogacara Buddhism. And Yogacara Buddhism in English is often translated as consciousness-only Buddhism. Hmm. So you can immediately see where where why idealism could look very interesting for, for, for someone who's very interested in, in Yogacara Buddhism, right? Because mm-hmm. the idea of Yogacara Buddhism is, is the way in which, you know, things that exist are not independent of our activity. Right. And that's a fundamental Hegel, Hegelian position, right? I mean, from the phenomenology to, to later on, that we can't think about the world as, as mind independent. So now we see, now we see that one that one point of very important overlap. Now, from there, there is something he wants to criticize, at least in the way that Hegel is interpreted in, in Japan at the time and, and, and is, uh, is still interpreted. And that, and that is what you pointed out, this idea of a linear kind of history, right? And he uses the idealism in some ways, this idea that, you know, we create things to then go against the idea of, of there being a, a linear dynamic in history. He goes on further to then say, well, yeah, that linear progressive vision of history is actually used to cloak uh, imperialism and so on. Mm-hmm. 
It's time for our final break. This is Rats and Monkeys, another from Art Bear's Winter Songs release. Stay with us for more on Chinese nationalist revolutionary Zhang Tian when Interchange returns. Welcome back. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show features the thinking of Chinese revolutionary philosopher Zhang Tian with guest Viren Murti. In this final segment, we'll tackle the thorny enlightenment idea of subjectivity and individualism as the key to liberty in a culture with a very different understanding of being and time. The idea of progress, or uh, which again, I, I uh, you know, I, we think of in, in Westernized terms, the idea of progress is Eurocentric, as we've been saying before, and obviously it's what we talked about with Mark Driscoll as well. But progress in uh, China and Japan, in terms of the um, the opium wars, in terms of uh, economics, in terms of trade, in terms of whaling, in terms of you know anything you can think of, uh, just means we're going to come over and steal all your stuff. You know, be you up while we do it and shoot you and kill you. So the the interesting difficulty here is that we you know we talk about these things in a philosophical way, but on the ground, what is this Eurocentric progress, right? What, yeah. And and so I assume you know we we can't look at Zhang like Zhang has this notion of what he's trying to do philosophically, but clearly he has a notion of Eurocentric progress that he sees in what I assume is an extremely negative way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a, another complicated question, and it goes back to our to our earlier uh, point about you know some of the the complicated idea of the the notion of of, of modernity itself, mm-hmm. and that I think plays a role here because if we think about you know someone like Hegel or even you know a lot of modern Western thought, which is inextricably linked to um, both Western modernity and often the notion of of progress itself. If we think about the notion of of modernity and progress, and and one of the things that is often used as a marker is the emergence of subjectivity right mm. that is where again you get all the all the liberation theory is 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 based on in some way or the other that subject i think there's a part of jiang that whether explicitly or implicitly affirms that um because it's very much saying yes it's you know the consciousness that 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 creates these things and that's in some way bringing it back to some kind of self of course Given that he's a Buddhist, he's going to be critical of the self as well. So that becomes that, that's where it, it, he becomes a little more complex. Right. So there's that side that I don't think he ever wants to completely get rid of. But there's another side of what we call progress, and that has to do with 
industrialization, capitalism, uh, all of these kind of things, right? And there were specific people he was arguing against and some of the anarchists, because those anarchists were saying, yeah, but we know progress is good. And these were especially the anarchists from China went to France. I mean, there were, there were people who were quite enamored with technological development. And what he wanted to say, and he has a, an essay, John Tayan has an essay on, on the two-sided nature of evolution. And there he says, well, the whole thing about if you look at the dynamic of progress, it's actually two-sided. As things get better and better, they actually get worse and worse as well, right? So this, in some senses, anticipates a lot of the thinking of the, of the 20th century, I think, uh, especially 20th century continental philosophy, right? Because in the 20th century, you get the idea that as modernity develops, it actually undermines freedom. And that is, you know, if you think about the Frankfurt School, the dialectic of enlightenment is very much that kind of story, right? And yet, you know, Hegel is under, underneath somewhere of all of this, because if you're saying, well, what, what happens when you get out of it? Well, if getting out of it is the realization of freedom, it again, is, it brings us back to the, the, the Hegelian narrative. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, okay so, so i like uh let's let's do uh, just a little bit about evolution um and and what you were just talking about too because i do also find it fascinating how these concepts that we tend to uh that tend to run in the back in the background our operating systems right our operating systems of of modernity or, or trying to understand what it's like to be human or to imagine progress and evolution's at the center of this right um darwin's ideas applied to social constructions as well uh, create this idea of progress. And again, it's a Eurocentric progress, right? That there's a certain kind of person, a certain way to be, a certain type of thinking, a certain type of agriculture, a certain type of dealing with the world, a certain way to be in nature, and all of it is this way, and the rest of it needs to be progressing towards that. Um, otherwise, you're backwards. Otherwise, you're a savage, a primitive, etc. Right, right? Right, so, right, right, right. Uh, and I assume that Zhang is working pretty hard against that particular way of thinking of things. Definitely, yes. Yeah, I mean, and I think that he's very fairly explicit, um, you know, to say that, yeah, there's this whole way, which I mean, because that is where you get the notion of progress becomes an ideology of imperialism. Right. And I think that is where you get the very famous idea of the civilizing mission. Right. But I think at another level, there is the problem that the post-colonials often bring. And that is that, you know, what happens when, you know, you get independence, but you end up doing the same things that the colonizers do. There's a way in which you're not quite colonized, but you're reproducing the same conditions of domination. Uh, and I think this is a problem that, you know, someone like Gandhi is, as well was, was, was very interested in. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Revolutionary Parallels on the Chinese scholar and philosopher Zhang Tian with guest Viren Murti. In it, we seek to detail the tangle of the so-called East and West at the turn of the 20th century, where we find imperialism striding the globe with technological strength and a will to power, and the ways anti-imperial nationalism is deployed against it. A lot of our liberal values, you know, stem from this idea of uh, individualization, you know, an atomization of people uh, into this single so sovereign subject, 
right, who, as you say already, has consciousness is, you know, the way in which we discover ourselves and how we are in the world and that uniqueness of of consciousness and how uh, that's the most important thing to recognize. You know, that's how, that's what brings you close to deities as well, even, right? Your, your ability to think takes you away from the animal kingdom as well. You know, no no matter how wrongheaded these ideas might be, I guess there is what I would assume is a kind of cultural distinction here as well, where let's, let's say my ignorance of China and Asia or, 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 you know, has a philosophical idea that is less atomistic. But there's a tension there with Zhang as well, right? I mean, because he is an individual subject who's making a philosophical history. He's an important, unique individual. There are a number of interesting points there. And I think that the fundamental issue here is the problem of individualism, or, right. or not just not individualism, but the very idea of the individual. Right. It can also bring us back to Hegel. I mean, one of his big criticisms of, of what he calls the Orient is that, you know, they don't have this, the moment of subjectivity or individuality, right? And, and you know, even Marx on the um, Asiatic mode of production, it's often there's a lack of space for individuality in that. But in this particular period, what also makes this question interesting is Mill is being translated at, at this point, uh, around this time in both China and Japan. You know, Zhang is familiar with these ideas, and there's a side of him that is extremely interested in the individual. Um, because he has an essay, a famous essay written, I think, in 1907 called On the State. And this is a, an essay that he presented uh, in the context of what was called the Socialist Reading Group. And there were like anarchists in Japan and so on who were listening to this. And, and he uses Buddhist categories to affirm the individual over the state. Uh, so, in fact, he has a famous line there, which is, you know, the, the individual is real and the groups are illusory, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so he has that side uh, that goes against a lot of the nationalist discourse, uh, you know, that he himself was partly part of, right? And so there is that perspective. But on the other hand, he also wants to then say, well, ultimately, the individual is also not ultimately real or doesn't have independent existence. As you're talking, you say, this is a famous essay by Zhang. This is a famous essay. You know, it's difficult to find these famous essays <laughs> yeah. by, by Zhang. Uh, <laughs> I, I would have read a couple if I could have found any. <laughs> okay, so so I guess the first I should make a pitch. I'm trying, I'm on a, I'm a, I'm on a project now to try and translate some of Zhang into English. <laughs> okay. um, so, so, you know, hopefully that'll be out at some point. Um, with 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 another friends and one of the things i do want to get in there are these political essays because they're shorter you know i say it's famous maybe because i've read it (laughs) many times but but i think that it's not i should say it's it's famous among a certain group because jiang is not until recently more recently really famous for these essays until you know he started becoming more recognized as a political theorist and now there are people who work on him in china and japan Mm. But I think, you know, to really, if you really look at, well, what is he really famous for? And that's going to be the anti-Mantua essays. Some of those where I think make their ways into textbooks in China. Oh. So those are those are specific to a Chinese context, though. It has less of a... Yes, a exactly. Less, less exactly. So that's what I want to try to do is, is with the translations to try to say, well, you know, you know, maybe 
there could be something of this that's interest beyond just China. I mean, in fact, that's how I came into it, got interested in jobs. Let's have this be the last word because I wanted to know, you know, how it is that besides waiting for, for you to make these translations, how it is we, we can think about what uh, Zhang could stand for uh, as we move, you know, as we continue to move what I, I think uh, uh, of as the wrong direction in the world. Uh, are there things that you're finding in Zhang that, that would be, you know, helpful to us uh, or would, would show any kind of way to sort of stand against what I think is still, uh, you know, an imperialist uh, culture, an imperialist uh, economics, an imperialist world order. Uh, and I assume that, uh, at least I hope anyway, the idea is that there's there are things in Zhang that can help us think against it. I think the first thing is imperialism. And I think it's concerning that a lot of people today don't want to talk about imperialism. I mean, they're, they're even, even among Marxists, there are a lot who want to say, well, imperialism is passe. Uh, we, all we need to do is talk about capitalism. Now, of course, capitalism is very important, but I don't think imperialism has, has gone away. I think that it may have changed its form, right? And I think here there's uh, a lot of questions about how we should think about imperialism in a, in a neoliberal world. I mean, it's just like capitalism has also changed and became neoliberal. This is where one of the things we need to do when we think about Jiang's significance, and here we would also say maybe the the significance of something like third world resistance, the significance of resistance to capitalism and all of these kinds of things is to try to situate, well, what happened to imperialism? And, you know, one of the texts that has um, helped me think about this is a text by uh, Leo Panich and Sam Gindon called American Empire and the Making of Global Capitalism, which makes the the argument that that what's what's happening to imperialism today is that you you have the United States that acts as a kind of policeman for global capitalism. It makes the world safe for global capitalism. Right. In that context, thinking about you know, Jiang's critique of both imperialism and the, and, the, and the ideology of progress, I think, become very important. And so this is where we can begin to think about where do we see resistance and what would resistance look like? And so this gets into the question of contemporary China as well, right? Where, where you do see some resistance to the United States. But then the question is, where is that going, right? And I think that is that there again, Jiang could become useful, right? To to look at, well, what is China actually doing? Is it in the same game, trying to get the upper hand, or is there the possibility of it doing something different, right? I think, and that's one of the, the types of questions that he might help us to pose. Then I went walking. That's our show. We'll close with the last song by Art Bears. This is Truth, off of the 1981 release, The World As It Is Today. Then I got talking, but the soldiers would not let me stay. And I got reading, and I learned. Prosperity had come And this was Eden Worms appeared And truth brushed them away Thanks to Vera Murti for discussing the political philosophy and cultural context of Zhang Tian. 
and introducing us to new models for thinking about nationalism and ways we might reconsider the value our own imperialist nation places on spreading commerce and liberty across the planet. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.